0: Last week, I used the example of Claude Monet and his Impressionist paintings, uh, where he would paint similar scenes and similar subjects, you know, haystack after haystack, uh, repeated versions of the Houses of Parliament in London, numerous water lily paintings. The subject matter was the same, but because the light had changed, it was a different picture. He was... Capturing something fresh and new is a, a different perspective on a very familiar subject. And I said I think uh, John was doing something kind of like that in the book of Revelation. Uh, we revisit scenes and subjects, but but look at them, if you like, under fresh light, from a fresh angle. Uh, the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 uh, faced opposition and pressure and hardship from the powerful in their society, civic leaders, imperial Rome. But then we move, in chapters 4 and 5, into the throne room of heaven, and we see power and imperial rule from a very fresh and different perspective. And then we have the seven seals. Uh, we had that in chapter six, and God's judgment being experienced in the world, and the, the trial and the test that believers endured uh, for their faith, living in a world under judgment. And that subject matter uh, we looked at last week, revisited in chapters eight and nine with the seven trumpets. God's judgment is being experienced in the world, but but this time the perspective is on the unbelievers. Will they repent as they see God judging the world? Uh, one of the ways to come to terms with the book of Revelation is to recognise these repeated scenes and subjects being viewed from a different angle, with a fresh perspective. Well, this week, I want to use another movement of art and painting as a tool to help us understand what John is doing in this book. Now, everyone loves the Impressionist painters, Monet, Renoir, Van Gogh, but much more provocative are the paintings by Pablo Picasso. Uh, his paintings seem flat. His subjects are distorted, bits and pieces of a human being all chopped up. It's, it's been called childish and weird. Uh, Picasso said, a head is a matter of eyes, nose, mouth, which can be distributed in any way you like. Uh, in the early 1900s, uh, Pablo Picasso and his friend George Braque invented a new way of painting. Uh, cubism, as it came to be called, is considered the most influential and radical art movement of the 20th century. And, and what Picasso and those who followed him were doing is showing more than one perspective at the same time in each painting. They... They move beyond just showing the subject from the angle of the artist, one perspective. What, what if the artist could show what a person looked like from the left and the right and from behind and so on, all at the same time? What if they put all those different perspectives, different points of view into one painting? See, the, the artist is revealing and showing you what would normally be hidden. You can't see the back of my head at the moment, or you can't see me from my right or my left. The artist is revealing and showing what would normally be hidden and out of sight. Now, there's more philosophical issues at play in a Picasso painting than just a new technique, but, but do pick up on the idea of, of showing a subject from different angles all at the same time. It can be confronting and off-putting. seems a bit bizarre and a bit weird. Well, I think John is doing something like that in the book of Revelation. Now, there are a whole lot of things being shown to us from different angles all at the same time. And many find the book of Revelation confronting and off-putting and a bit bizarre and weird. So, for example... Uh, we've already looked at the seven seals. But there's this break between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. In chapter 7, we have a different angle, a different perspective dropped in. We go back in time and forward in time, and we're shown what is happening for God's people while the seven seals are being opened. God's people themselves are sealed or marked out for protection, uh, before the judgments even start. And then we race forward to the last day and see the rejoicing of all God's people who've come through the trials and tribulations of God's judgment on display. So we get, we get these two perspectives on, on the same canvas. These different points of view are being shown to us as a reader. Well, I think something like that, that technique is being used again here in chapters 10 and uh, the first half of chapter 11. In between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, with all those judgments uh, against creation and demonic powers working against humanity, in between the sixth and the seventh we have a different perspective, a different angle. We are shown what is happening for God's people while the seven uh, seals and the seven trumpets are being opened or being sounded out. Uh, we're being shown what might normally be hidden. If only we were to focus on the world and what was happening with the world. Now, as we come to a difficult portion, and this is a difficult portion, uh, that's what all the commentators say, uh, a difficult portion in a, what can at times be a difficult book, it's, it's worth remembering that John isn't giving his readers a kind of precise documentary or a, a detailed presentation of what will happen in the future. Uh, like that. those Picasso imagery, they're, they're, what John gives us is something that's simplified and, and full of symbols. Uh, John uses Old Testament images and colours to paint New Testament revelation. Well, we looked last week, the six trumpets that we looked at were, we're all about God's anger and the, the outpouring of his judgement on the world that uh, is currently living in rebellion against him. Uh, we saw in the first four, creation was subject to judgment, a decay, futility, frustration through those first four trumpets. Creation is under God's curse on account of humanity, and, and the creation works against us. And then we saw in the fifth and the sixth trumpets, the giving over of humanity to satanic forces. That, that's life in this world. The devil is given relatively free reign to cause terror and torment as part of God's judgment on the world. And the seventh trumpet, the end of chapter uh, 11, leads to God's ultimate kingdom and his reign over all the world. He destroys the destroyers of the earth. Chapter 11, verse 18. Now, while those six trumpets are sounding out judgment against our world in this age, before the final trumpet sounds on the last day, we're given a parallel, an alternative view of life in this world. In particular, what is happening to the Christians while God's judgment is being trumpeted out against the world? Now, in this book so far... Uh, John, as our author, has, has been relatively on the sideline. You know, he, he's been seeing visions of what's happening to them over there, and he's sort of passively recording it. But in our passage today, he's much more personally involved. Uh, John is given a scroll that he is to eat. Uh, John is given a measuring rod, and he's told to do the measuring. John here is, is very much like an Old Testament prophet, like Ezekiel where his message is backed up by his actions. Not only does John have a message to announce, he has a drama to perform. And this chapter is full of imagery drawn from the book of Ezekiel. See, Ezekiel was given a scroll and told to eat it. Ezekiel was given a measuring rod and told to go and measure the temple. Now, Ezekiel describes a resurrection event, like chapter 11, verse 11 when he describes God's spirit, God's breath, uh, bringing the valley of dry bones back to life. And the background to Ezekiel's experience was very much like the experience of first century Christians that John was writing to, because Ezekiel was prophesying when God's people were in exile in Babylon. They were living away from the promised land. They were living under a foreign power. It was hard and it was testing for God's people living in enemy territory. And the book of Ezekiel zeroes in on Ezekiel as a kind of representative believer. His book focuses on what he must say and see and do. And John is very much like Ezekiel. John is living as an exile on the island of Patmos. And God's people are very much like those living in Babylon during the days of Ezekiel. They and we are living in a world in which the six trumpets are sounding. What is it like for the Christians living somewhere very much like Babylon? Well, what are Christians to be doing while God's judgment is beginning to be poured out on the world? And that's a theme that will be developed as we push further into the book of Revelation. But here in chapters 10 and 11, John gives believers three images, three pictures, three sketches that should be driving Christians. See, we have a message, we have a hope, and we have a mission. And John shows the sweet message with a bitter aftertaste, the measure of God's people with God's presence, and the faithful witness even with persecution. Uh, let's look at each of those. Firstly, uh, the sweet message with a bitter aftertaste. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. With his His face was like the sun. His legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. Well, here is this mighty angel, and the description just underscores his incredible power. He stands with one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. I mean, that, that picture only works if you can imagine this colossal figure, a giant angel dressed in a cloud with a rainbow crown and a face like the sun. Again, this is a description of majesty and greatness. His voice sounds like a roaring lion when he speaks and, and peals of thunder. Again, it's an expression of supreme authority and rule. It's the picture of an angel come from heaven with vast power that transcends the, the, the chaos and the, the turmoil of the world below. We, we saw in Daniel 12 uh, an angel, a mighty angel. It's not hard to see how John is drawing on that material as he describes this impressive and powerful angel. And this mighty angel speaks seven thunders. But John's told not to record what the thunders said. Now, where there is a blank, a blank space like that, all sorts of people want to guess, well, what, what was in there? And there are lots of guesses uh, the most uh, persuasive explanation for me, I think, is about why we're not told what the seven thunders said is that we don't need to get any more warnings. The seven seals were warnings to repent. The seven trumpets were warnings to repent. A- and then we have the seven thunders, and as if God says, look, don't tell them what the seven thunders, seven thunders said. They've heard enough by way of warning." Whatever the seven thunders said, we don't need to hear them, because the angel assures John that it won't be long now. now. Chapter 10, verse 6. And he swore to him by, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, There will be no more delay. The seventh trumpet that announces final judgment and full salvation, the destruction of the destroyers, the kingdom of God, safety and rescue, is not long now. Uh, in our reading from Daniel 12, Daniel, another prophet of God, writing in the days of people, the people of God being in exile in Babylon. Daniel 12, the angel who swears to him who lives forever, saying that there is... Some time yet to go before his prophecy will be fulfilled, but the angel in Revelation says, "No, no, there will be no more delay. Not long to go. What was a long way off for Daniel and his, the Israelites, it's almost here for John and the Christians. Not long to go. It's one of the great messages of this book: not long to wait." Oh, there might be great chaos and turbulence for the church and all kinds of suffering for believers, but God's put a limit on it. Not long to go now. And that is the message delivered by this mighty angel from heaven. Uh, John is instructed to take that message from the angel, take the scroll from his hands and eat it. And it will be a sweet message of gospel hope and eternal life. But as John as he digests that message, it's got a bitter aftertaste. Not long, that's a sweet, reassuring message. But there are still great horrors to come for them that they must endure in a fallen and broken world. A world under the judgment of God, that leaves a bitter taste. And that sweet, bitter scroll is a good summary of what Revelation has to say about the Christian life now. The end is coming, and it will be with glory and safety and eternal joy. But on the way, there's great trouble. As we work through this book, you, you may find sweet comfort, but you may also experience the bitter taste of a world being judged. And that message is to be passed on. Uh, John has symbolically consumed this message. It's become a part of him. John has written this book so that this message will become a part of us. The whole point of taking the message in is so that we can speak it out. Chapter 10, verse 10, I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I'd eaten it, my stomach turned sour then I was told you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages and kings. Sweet message, but a bitter aftertaste. Now, secondly, the measure of God's people with God's presence. Now chapter 11 verse 1, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshippers. Now, here's another picture from Ezekiel, uh, drawing on the episodes where Ezekiel was instructed to take a measuring rod and measure out the temple. Now, we're going to be helped to understand what's happening in Revelation if we understand a bit better what was happening in Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel was living in exile, away from Jerusalem, uh, living in Babylon, but he is taken by the Lord in a vision back to Jerusalem and given a measuring rod to measure out the temple. Now, there was no temple in Jerusalem. The Babylonians had completely destroyed it. So, Ezekiel's temple vision is, about, is a promise about the future. The experience of the people in exile was miserable, but their hope for a future temple was glorious. And this picture of Ezekiel as a kind of surveyor measuring out a new temple... Well, it turns out to be a vast temple, much bigger than any temple that has ever been built. The temple in Ezekiel becomes a city, and the city becomes holy, and, and there's a river flowing, and it's watering the city, and there's renewal and health and restoration. We're going to read on in the book of Revelation and see that picture again. It's a picture of the future being safe and wonderful, even as they live through the present experience that is miserable. That's what it meant for Ezekiel. Well, what does it mean here in Revelation? Well, I think the same thing. Measure out the people of God. Measure out those who worship at the temple of God. Have your eyes on the future for God's people. Even as there's turmoil and chaos all around, even as there's suffering and struggle, remember the people of God. For Ezekiel, the vision of the temple was in the future, but here in Revelation, it's, it's partly in the present. Uh, the thing that John is to measure is the temple. The, the temple is an expression of God dwelling with his people. They are near him. They experience his presence. Now, it can't be John going off to measure the physical temple in Jerusalem because that was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, and I think John's writing in the 90s see, what John is to measure is the temple of God's church. The, the Christians measure them. They are the hope for the future, but, but they're already here in the now. For Ezekiel, it was all the future, but for John, there's something in the present to measure. Uh, even this morning, here we are, says the Apostle Paul, the temple of God gathered together. This, this is a group that can be measured in fact, add in all the other Christians around the world and measure that. Here is something to measure. Look at the people of God trusting in Jesus while judgment goes on around the world that there is a temple god 's people gathered is to be an experience of great comfort and, and a promise. For the future. This is a sweet message with a bitter aftertaste. The measure of God's people with God's presence. And thirdly, the faithful witnesses, even with persecution. The third image that John gives us is the two witnesses. Verse 3 And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands and they stand before the Lord of the earth. Uh, they have fire come out of their mouths, verse 7. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes out of the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square for three and a half days. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them. Then the breath of life entered them and they stood on their feet. What's going on here? Well, let's try to recognise some of the imagery from the rest of the Bible to help us understand. The two witnesses, we're given some clues about who they are. Firstly, they are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. And you can see in the footnote, it's a reference to the book of Zechariah, where it refers to Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the king they are the faithful remnant in the, days of, in the days of compromise. They were in exile in Babylon. Now the people have come back and it's time to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the city. There's Joshua and Zerubbabel trying to get the people to go, but they won't. They're all distracted. They're all compromised. They're all corrupt. And the olive trees are metaphorically plumbed into the lampstands so that sort of the olive oil flows out of the trees into the lampstand, so that lamps are always burning, always shining bright, even though the culture is corrupt and crooked. So, these two witnesses are Zerubbabel and Joshua, according to Zechariah. Uh, but, secondly, we, we read on a bit and we discover oh, they have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain, and they also have power to turn the waters into blood. Well, if you know your Old Testament, you'll recognize these two. Elijah, the one who prays that there would be no rain for three years. And Moses, who strikes the water with his staff and turns it into blood. So these two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. Hang on. Are they Moses and Elijah, or are they Zerubbabel and Joshua? And I think that what John is doing is choosing examples from the Old Testament of those who are faithful to God in times of compromise. So the two witnesses are, for example, people like Moses, who chose the people of God over the riches of Egypt. Like Elijah, who prophesied in the times of apostasy under King Ahab. Like Joshua and Zerubbabel, as they limped back from exile and resisted a culture of compromise. That they were all faithful witnesses. And there will be more like them. See, what we saw in the Old Testament, we, we look forward to in John's vision and we'll find in the future. They are not two specific, unique Christians who will one day appear in the future. No, they are any and all faithful believers who will declare God's message of salvation and judgment. And for 1,260 days, people like this will keep speaking for God. 1,260 days, which is 42 months, which is... Three and a half years, which is, as Daniel described it, a time, times, and half a time. One plus two plus a half is three and a half years, which is 42 months, which is 1260 days. These are all different ways of saying the same thing. The same number. What is the significance of this time period? Are we supposed to get the stopwatch out, start counting off the days? No, no, as with all the other numbers in Revelation, they are symbolic numbers. Three and a half is half of the full time. See, seven is the number of completion we've been encountering again and again. Uh, the number of fullness or totality, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven thunders, seven churches. Three and a half is half. It's it's shortened, it's reduced, it's not the complete time scale. And symbolically, God is shortening the time of the mayhem and tribulation. The, the very thing that Jesus said, Matthew 24, unless the days had been shortened, even the elect would be led astray. In other words, it's not long. It's just a short time for God's witnesses to endure and remain faithful in times of persecution and widespread compromise. Within this shortened timescale, these witnesses, these olive trees, these lampstands hold out God's message. And what happens to them? Verse 7 the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower them and kill them. and Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt where also their Lord was crucified. Uh, God's message in this age is not well received. It's not welcomed by the beast. will come to him another day. And God's messengers are opposed in this city. Which city? The one figuratively called Sodom, the one figuratively called Egypt, the one figuratively called Jerusalem. In other words, any and every city where God's people are opposed and persecuted. And where the message of the Lord rings out clearly and faithfully. In that place, there will be persecution, even martyrdom. And somewhat gruesomely, they will look to humiliate and degrade God's people even in their death, refusing to bury them, celebrating their death with the giving of gifts. Just imagine as we count down to the celebration of Christmas and the birth of Jesus. I know that our culture largely ignores Jesus, but just imagine a society so given over to ungodliness that instead of Christmas presents you exchange killing of Christians' presence and you rejoice and you celebrate that finally those Christians have all been silenced. It's a grim picture. People in our culture won't be sad if Christians go away. They will celebrate and rejoice at our demise. And yet... After three and a half days, again, a shortened time, half of what it could have been. Verse 11, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here and they went up to heaven in a cloud. Just like Elijah, taken up in a cloud. God's witnesses, faithful persecuted, but ultimately secure, resurrected, raised to eternal life. While judgment is being poured out on this world, what are the Christians doing? What's happening with them? Well, we, we have a message from heaven to, to eat up and speak out. Oh, we have a hope as the secure and measured people of God who experience his presence even now. And we have a mission as faithful witnesses to speak the gospel truthfully, even in the face of persecution and hostility. So what's the big message of this passage? In the middle of the seven trumpets, sounding God's judgment on the world around us, don't expect an easier ride as one of God's people. Expect trouble. I'll oh, be comforted. God has measured out his people. Their future is secure. I'll oh, be comforted. God has said oh, the time would be shortened. Be comforted. Even those who are killed will be resurrected to eternal life. And yet the scroll has a bitter taste. Expect trouble. Expect persecution. Expect martyrdom in some parts of the world. Expect people not to mourn the death of Christianity in our society. They'll even throw a party. It's a bitter taste, but also a sweet taste. In the end, believers will be safe. God will keep his people. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise that the gospel is sweetness Life and hope and transformation and forgiveness and rescue in the Lord Jesus. But the gospel is also a message of judgment. Death for sins. Eternal judgment for spurning the Lord Jesus and rejecting his salvation. You are sending your judgment on the world now and a greater judgment is yet to come. Oh, the gospel is both sweetness and bitterness. Help us to embrace it, to, as John does, eat it, consume it, let it shape and flavour us, that we might speak and live in a way that pleases you this day. For Jesus' sake. Amen.